to positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America. No, no, no. Hello, everyone. Jake Flores here. Ooh, I didn't even mean to step on you like that. Uh, I don't know why I said that like that. I'm Jake Flores. That's Anders Lee. Anders Lee here. No, I've been waiting all along to get you to conform to my ways. <laughs> it's Yeah, you're in my head now. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Suddenly my mattress is looking real saucy. <laughs> <laughs> there are many ways, yes, of the, of the Jay Lee that uh, many people should adopt. Mattress, humping being one of them. <laughs> um, I have a girlfriend. Uh, hello, Anders. What's going on with you, man? Oh, nothing much. Uh, here in in Brooklyn, New York, and pondering pondering a question of is it? And you can tell me the truth here. Listeners, write in. I'm trying <laughs> to figure this out. Um, there's a lot of 3D chess going on in my in my emotional and logical minds. Is it racist to get seasonal affective disorder during Black History Month? I think so. I think you answered your own question. Why are yeah. you so sad? Are you sad that people are liberated, Anders? Does it make I you uncomfortable? Maybe. I mean, now I'm interrogating my whiteness, and maybe that's it. Every February, I just feel awful for the entire month, and I never made a made a link. Um, but maybe, perhaps, the reason I feel so awful is that they chose this month to recognize the African Americans, which sh- it should be a, a warmer, sunnier, longer month, as other people pointed out. It really is. It's like how MLK Street is in the worst part of town. Like Black History Month is in the worst month. It's uh, you know, all the worst movies come out because of just Oscar season type dynamics mm-hmm. in February. It's like a, it's notoriously like a movie is released in February. It's going to be bad. Yeah, it like didn't uh, invest in it. It's the longest amount of time before it can be considered for an Oscar. Um, Valentine's Day is in it. Everyone hates that, you know, except for I mean, that's like a weird um, panopticon sort of situation where like everyone has to pretend to like it. But everyone's like, fuck. See, I actually like it, but I'm in a relationship with ship with somebody who does not give a shit about it. And that's is, funny. Is traveling this week and in other at other points, just schedules stuff for it and completely forgets but i would always fantasize about having valentine's day with a gf and now that i fully have one the hottest valentine's day i ever had before having a girlfriend not gonna say hottest the most uh, (laughs) exciting one i remember when i was uh in high school there's a woman who i would help her move harps she had a harp and she would uh she needed help carrying it up her stairs (laughs) And and it happened to be valentine's day and for the first time, after like almost a year of doing this, she was just like, do you want to watch me play harp? And I was <laughs> like, uh, yeah. And it was, to be clear, no, I don't, I'm not saying anything. There was no sexual tension. It was just a very beautiful platonic moment of uh, love on a very human level. Um, not necessarily a, a, you know, romantic kind of love. But uh, that was, that's, that's probably still my best Valentine's Day that I've ever had. Uh, that sounds like it was about to turn it really hot 
just it would that would be a better story, but I don't want to be smirched this woman and uh you know because I was 16 at the time, but um she I think she was just being nice and she probably recognized that I was lonely. Yeah, just like this guy, he could use some heart music. That'd be yeah. cool if it was October and she was like, young man, can you help me move my spooky organ up the <laughs> stairs? Do you want to watch me play it? And she's like, da, 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 da. Uh, yeah, then she ate me, cut off her head <laughs> or something. Yeah, it was a spooky story. Um, but yeah, why does, why does it bother you that it's Black History Month? Do you hate that George Washington Carver invented the peanut? Or whatever, <laughs> uh, peanut butter. Sorry, I've uh, I've read a couple of really interesting Black History stories along those lines recently. The guy who invented the video game cartridge is black. He's got a oh, really the video ga- okay. The, you, the way you pronounce that, you made it sound like there's a video game called Cartridge, and I thought there was like <laughs> a game about I don't know cartridges, but no, you mean the device to administer video games from the uh, late 20th century. Yeah, because it used to be you would buy like a, a console. The first consoles they made it just it like had all the games in it, or it was like a, you would buy like an arcade thing that just has you know The Simpsons in it or whatever. And you you buy one machine that has that's it. You get everything that's in it. So the guy who came up with the idea of like, oh, what if you had games that were their own thing, and then you that way you can pick and choose and buy your own library of games. Black dude has a, I can't remember his name off the top of my head. Incredible Wikipedia photo. Look him up. He is a 70s ass black dude. Uh, very cool. And also, this is incredible. I thought this was a joke when I read it. It's fucking Jerry real. Lawson. Okay. Yeah, Jerry Lawson. Yeah, that's his name. He's cool. Um, also, the, the inventor of the folding chair was black, which Whoa. I saw a meme that was like him, and then it pans over to that fucking... Uh, that brawl that went down at that shipyard last year where the, uh-huh. the Birmingham, they, those black folks rightfully beat up uh, people that were bullying them and hit them with folding chairs. Oh, full circle. Right. Isn't that cool? Yeah. It's like, um, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, it's cool. And then Murray did the Wakanda arms and looked at me and said, Ruth Bader Ginsburg forever. That's the end of that story. Okay, so <laughs> uh, my cat, man, he's he's learning. So anyways, um, listen, listen, everyone. I can't remember what installment of this series we're on. And also, I think we I kind of broke a rule of mine here, which is that this this series has weaved in and out of being on Patreon, just given scheduling and stuff like that. So I don't even know if people remember that we're doing this. But uh, if you're unfamiliar, I'm in the middle of going chapter by chapter through a book called The Hundred Years War on Palestine by um, who? What is the name of this author? Rashidi Khalid, I think. I heard his name pronounced on uh, an interview last night, and it's it's like Rashid. Fuck. Um, he's. Let's just spell out the name instead of saying it. Okay, because I keep uh, almost saying Rashida Talib. She did not write this book. <laughs> no. <laughs> that is interesting that they their names uh, sound similar though, and but probably because they're both Palestinian. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be my first guest. I don't know, but I'm not a detective. Uh, but anyways, um, yeah. So. We are on chapter fucking, I don't even remember, seven or something like that, uh, which covers the uh, the Siege of Beirut in 1982. It's a really interesting story, and it's when I read this book the first time, 
it's the chapter that kind of grabbed me the most because it's mm. when the U.S. first really solidifies as the backer of Israel, and there's just nothing but parallels to what's happening now. Uh, we'll get into it in a little bit, but I um, I need to reiterate that this, the name of the series, the concept of the series is hung over Palestine city in history because it, as it happens, not even on purpose, every edition of this, I happen to have been hung over as I have uh, gone over my notes and put the episode together. And today's no different, but I'm not hung over from drugs or alcohol or anything fun like that. Hmm. Let me tell you a harrowing tale, Anders Lee. Oh, when you said hair with well, the first uh, syllable of harrowing it made me think this was going in a certain direction that it might not be. I, I wish I had done heroin. Here's what <laughs> happened. So I, I was feeling kind of cruddy the other day. And um, you know how like. Let's take a sidestep for a second. You know, how, have you ever heard the story about the algorithm and its advertising and how like uh, it, the algorithm was outing teenage girls who were pregnant at one point? Because Target would send like coupons to people's houses for like diapers and shit. And they were, it, it was because the algorithm was micro advertising towards the teenage girl that lived at the house, right? Uh, and it would, because it knew that they were pregnant because of just like various metadata or whatever the fuck that it follows. Uh-huh. Um, so it would either out someone who knew they were pregnant or people found out they were pregnant by getting coupons from like Target or whatever for yeah. shit that you need when you have a baby. Um, really spooky Black Mirror stuff, right? Wait, they found out they were pregnant. So the algorithm knew and they didn't? The algorithm would like know you were pregnant before you knew what? because it just was following. Like Googling like certain like, you know, foods that pregnant people eat. Yeah, stuff like that, or like I, I don't know. That's the question here: is like, how does it fucking know? You know, but like, it's creepy. Like, it just it knows everything about you. Um, and I've had I've been having stuff like this happen to me a lot lately. Like, I don't know. At one point, I fucking paid for something in cash. Like, I bought an allergy medicine thing when I was on the road at one point in cash at a corner store. And like an hour later, I looked at Instagram and I got a an advertisement for like this really specific, really obscure off brand like brand of allergy shit that I had bought. And I was just like, how the fuck? I didn't even use my credit card. Like, how did it know? You know? Yeah. I don't know. It's real spooky. Um, well, anyways, the other day I was, uh, I was feeling kind of rough and I've, I've had a stuffed up nose for a while because I caught a cold because it rained really bad here in LA and I was stuck out in it. And my heater was broken. And it was just uh, it was bad. So I caught a cold. I've been recovering from it. My nose has been stuffed up. So I went outside and, and there's this really great taco truck in my neighborhood. I went to it and I uh, I got a really spicy burrito. Like the, I got the red sauce, which is That's like what you got to do out here. Up, yeah. The red sauce is like, don't fuck like be careful. That's that's a spicy one. Because um, I've been places where the green sauce is a spicy one. The red sauce is not to be fucked with here. Okay. So I got it and I was eating it and. I was walking around. I took the bus to go pick up my car. I left somewhere because I had been drunk and I did not want to drunk drive. So I was pulling that move, you know, the uh, bus of shame or whatever the next day <laughs> to go pick up my car. And I'm like eating this thing and it's great. It's like clearing my sinuses, right? And I'm like, man, this is awesome. But I'm really thirsty and I forgot to get a drink. So I get out of the bus and I'm sort of walking to where I left my car, but I pass a Carl's Jr. And I was like, you know what? Fuck a soda. I'm going to treat myself to a milkshake just for no reason. So I get a milkshake and I think the combination of the spiciest burrito ever 
and the milkshake. I don't know. Stuff starts happening. Anyway, before we even get to that, I looked at Instagram and was sitting around as I get home, you know, park my car in my apartment. And Instagram shows me this advertisement and it's a hat that says tummy ache survivor. And it's really funny. It's got the Hardy star on it or Carl's Jr. Depending on where you are. Uh, as this tummy ache survivor, I'm like, oh, this is really funny. Cool hat. Good joke. Maybe I'll buy it. You know, I don't know. And then I'm, I've got a, like a thing to do in the morning. So I go to bed real early. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to be responsible. Go to bed real early. And I wake up in the middle of the night and I'm fucking dying, dude. It was like I had an alien inside of me. And I was like sweating and rolling around and moaning. My cat thinks I'm trying to play with him. So he's like jumping on me and shit. And then it occurred to me, I think that the fucking algorithm knew I had a tummy ache before I did, dude. Like it knew I was pregnant in a way, way, you know? They showed you the hat? I think that's why it advertised the hat to me. Because I was like, why is it showing me a hat that says tummy ache survivor? I don't have a tummy ache. Oh, wait. I did. I just didn't know it yet. God. And I swear, man, like... I haven't done anything this week because <laughs> it <laughs> it ruined my night. Like the other night, it fucked me up for like a while because I couldn't sleep. So then I had to sleep all day the next day. This is worse. Than, I I do drugs, man. This is worse than any drug I've <laughs> ever had to recover from. It really fucked me up, and it made me realize that uh, you can't mix spicy food and full on dairy like that at this point in your life. So that's the condition I was in when I wrote today's episode of Hungover Palestinian History. Uh, which I think counts. I'm going to go ahead yeah. and put that on the board. Email sure. us and let me know if that doesn't count. The email is uh, alexpatak at gmail.com. I don't know. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, but anyways, uh, before we... Oh, oh. Speaking of my memory not uh, being so well, I might have forgot. Is there anything else happening in the news before oh, we get into right. this? that's right. Yeah, this is a good pivot. Um, yeah, someone else who's... His mind is basically like Jake's stomach right now. The president yeah. of the United States, Joe Biden. Who Brain damage survivor. That'd be a cool hat for him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that may be what the, the campaign will come out with. Biden-Harris 2020 brain damage survivor. I'm a survivor <laughs> for these people. You know, it's they're, they're, it seems like they're leaning into it. And I yeah. saw a consultant on CNN say, this is what you got to do. He's not going to be able to hide the fact that he's out to lunch so they just have he just has to keep putting himself out there and people are going to get over it um which i guess is all they can really do other than have him drop out which for part of me somewhat suspected that that was going to happen on thursday night when uh, late at night he schedules this um impromptu press conference which uh, and there's no no subject planned it was a surprise uh so i for a second there i was like is he going to finally do it because i you know a a year or so ago i was like at some point this is going to have to happen he's going to have to step down and we'll all remember the where we were the moment that joe biden uh agreed to do what is the responsible thing and just step aside um but he did not do that which is predictable uh he's you know all signs point to him wanting to to take another shot at it and uh the the reason to get the press conference, of course, is because this um, this uh, DOJ uh, report came out 
And it was kind of similar to the Trump uh, classified document thing uh, where, you know, Trump was took home some some stuff from the White House he shouldn't have. And Joe Biden did the same thing after he was vice president. And, uh, you know, in all fairness, they overclassify a lot of stuff. And this seems to be some of that. I don't I don't I can't speak to the the legal implications of the of the report itself, but it seems to be the general consensus seems to be there's not much of a case there. However, the DOJ, it kind of seemed like whoever was in charge of doing this, like this is, was their way of like screaming to the world. This man is losing it. And <laughs> like, please help. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cause in the report, like he forgot, he didn't remember the day his son died. Uh, oh my God. <laughs> when that was, he didn't remember, um, I mean, he knew he had died, but he didn't remember when he didn't remember the years he was vice president. He kept going is like, Oh wait. So 2013, what, what was going on then? Was I vice president? Um, which, you know, to be fair, I mean, I don't remember what the fuck I was doing in 2013. Yeah. I mean, yeah, but you're not president of the country. Right. And that's <laughs> the thing people like, that's the, the kind of lame rejoinder to this from uh Democrat loyalist has, has been to to say like okay well you can't remember where your airpod your left airpod is which is a little different from uh like matters of state and uh the nuclear codes and shit like that i'm just kidding i can't i know where my left airpod is and i uh know what i was doing in 2013 i was working at the volstead lounge in austin texas oh okay and then i moved to new york that year Good year. Uh, I was a student at the new school in in 2013. But um, yeah, and Joe Biden was vice president, which was news to him. And so he comes out in this press conference, you know, guns blazing. And he's like really upset that they tried to question anything about his son being dead. And I I think he kind of nailed that line. But then everything after that was just a total flop. Um, as soon as he takes questions from reporters, which may have been a mistake, but again, it's like, what else you get? You're going to not take questions and show that, you know, there is something, something's up here. Uh, one of the reporters is asking about his memory and he, uh, gets mad and then he gets even more mad when a, a second reporter is like, sir, you've said in the past when you've, you've been questioned about your age to the American people that they can watch me. You say, watch me and they have watched you and they think you're too old. And he gets just incredibly offended and triggered and yells like, that's your opinion, man. Uh, (laughs) But she's like, no, it's not. It's literally polling data overwhelmingly comes back with, you are too old to be the president. And uh, he is so like, why not give somebody else a shot? And he's like, I'm the most qualified, yada, yada. And, uh, but so you know, it, it. I think he it revealed that he's uh, very cantankerous. I mean, we knew that for, for a while, but he uh, is very defensive about this issue. It's not going to go away. But the, I thought the worst part of this is well, there are a couple bad things. He was asked about like how bad is your memory, and he's like, it's so bad that I agreed to let you ask a question. <laughs> that is, I hate to hand it to him. That's kind of a funny comeback. Although, I, yeah, I don't know if that's really your memory that that, like, <laughs> that caused you to do that. Well, it's one of those things where it's like, oh, you have to like, it, it's a way homer, I guess. You have to <laughs> yeah. think through what he meant by that. But in the moment, it totally bombed. Uh, wow, that's and, funny. Yeah. Um, 
And then he's asked as he's walking away, and this may be a memory thing because you could tell he had planned to talk about Israel-Palestine and he's, he's walking out and then they start asking about it, him about it and he stops dead in his tracks, turns around and walks back to the podium. It's kind of like, you know, at, at the end of a concert when the band leaves the stage and then everybody keeps cheering and they come back on, you know? Yeah, it gives an encore, yeah. Right. Uh, to talk about Israel-Palestine and he, and this is the big, this, I interpreted this as this was the big headline grab from the night. This is what they were trying to be the main takeaway is he's like, I will say, Israel's conduct in Gaza, and he's like, delivering it so there's like a buildup and he's going to relieve the tension and it's going to say something really significant and he's like it has been over the top <laughs> which after several months now of <laughs> thousands of people dying children people trapped Jesus. under rubble it's a bit much <laughs> yeah over the top is the most this is the most critical he's ever gotten about about Israel, the IDF, and I find I, to me that was pretty low because he was. It seemed like an attempt to distract from the, his senility, but also like some an attempt at a sop to young people who are mad at him over Israel Palestine. And I guess statistically, there probably are some like millennials or Zoomers out, out there who are like, I don't know if I'm going to vote for Joe, vote for Joe Biden. He says he uh, agrees with Israel. Oh, he said it's over the top. Okay, I guess I'll, I'll guess Man. I'll show up. I, I, I heard something the other day about, this is like an unsubstantiated shit I remember from Twitter, but uh, the, apparently there's a quote of him off the record at some point calling Netanyahu a fucking lunatic. And it's like, <laughs> well, yeah, dude, stop giving him guns <laughs> if you think that. But um, I mean, this is for- that's a really interesting uh anecdote to kind of open with here because history fucking repeats itself man we'll get to that and at some point later in the episode yeah but anyway, go on well i'm saying knowing joe biden that could be just like a thing he says about his friend you know like, right. like that's oh, like yeah. an old guy. oh this fucking maniac over here um but he really came up i was hanging out the- with betty down in uh, <laughs> fucking Philly or the fuck he's from. Sorry, correction. He's not from Pittsburgh or fucking uh, Jersey, which is what I said on your episode with Freddie G. He's wait, uh, Netanyahu is from Jersey or Philly? Philly. He's from Philly. I went on a whole bit about him being from Jersey and uh, oh, okay. Freddie didn't correct me because I was having too much fun. But <laughs> correction. Me well, and, both me kind and of- Betty, we're hanging out <laughs> down in Philly. He's a fucking lunatic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, this is related to this because it's been so hard to um, get him to do anything against Israel because of his longstanding ties to the Israeli government, the Zionist project that go back to, uh, I guess, somewhat before this this era, but definitely within this era we're going to talk about today. And uh, I learned this apparently he had like a meeting with Golda Meir in this would have been like the seventies, and she completely like swept him off his feet. She was, you know, prime minister of Israel, uh-huh. uh, who was from who lived in who grew up in Milwaukee. Actually, all these motherfuckers are just from <laughs> towns that comedians are from. Yeah, me and Betty, we'd go get the citywide special, <laughs> tall can of PBR, and a shot of real whiskey. That's my <laughs> the favorite thing about Philly. Citywide special. They have a special you can get in any any dive bar. 
But apparently, and this may have been during this conflict, actually. I know I I was from a, an interview I was listening to with uh, with the author we're talking about. Uh, Biden gave a speech to I think it was like his big speech at APAC where stumping his chest and stuff. And in this in the speech, he was like he was saying that if it was America who was under attack and we're having a war that had like domestic implications that we wouldn't want to worry about women and children. We wouldn't worry about civilians. We'd just go ham. And at the time, the Israeli government people were like, whoa, let's tone that down. Uh, but I think it's changed just in this in this span of time. I mean, maybe I don't think they would say the same thing today, many of them. I mean, they pretend to, but I feel like it's gotten it's gotten closer to that to that vintage Biden position. Wait, what was Biden's position? He was saying that like they shouldn't worry about women and children and civilians. Oh, that's and, interesting. Yeah. You know, I mean something's interesting about that. I don't get you sidetracked, but like, um, do you know that like so there's like a kind of heinous amount of uh just videos of war crimes now that you'll see on Twitter, uh, the website that's called Twitter. And a lot of it is coming it's it's getting confusing, but uh, a lot of it is filmed by IDF soldiers. And you look at that and you go, oh my God, like what an oversight, right? But Louisa kind of broke this down on Why You Mad recently. I thought it was really interesting. There's like a case where like the IDF uh like like spared a like a Palestinian doctor, right? And then they killed him. Oh but they God. filmed the part where they saved him, and that video went to us in America <laughs> to like sanitize the IDF. The video of them killing them was not, it's not an oversight that that went out too. that went to Israel because yeah. that's actually good PR for people that are like, that support the genocide. Like that's, that's, that's good. Like they want to see that because it's mm. like bloodthirst or whatever. So like, these various positions are just like, um, you know, whether whether the position is, you know, fall, go in and kill them all or like, oh, we're going to be strategic and do a surgical strike. That's just political. That's just like um, optics, really. Yeah. And that's actually a really great place to start here because, um, you know, this is a specific story and it, I, there's a lot going on because it's the fucking Middle East and reading anything that I would like Google or like look on Wikipedia or whatever to try to just get like bare bones information for context in this, I'd run up against like the reframing of all of this. And it's, it's so depressing the way that if you read, you know, something that's supposed to be objective, that's presented us to that to us that way, like Wikipedia, it, it changes this whole story with language and like the, the press around this and how they would insist that like, Oh, Israel's motivations were to kill as few people as possible. And you know, you, you hear these terms like surgical and like uh, operation instead of like a war or whatever all the time. And um, yeah, I don't know that that's going to make this kind of, it, it makes it difficult to find the fucking truth, which is why books like this are good before we get, before we start, can you tell me what happened with him in Egypt and Me oh, Mexico? Fuck. I can't. I'm turning to Joe Biden. I can't believe I forgot that part. Jesus. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I saw people joking about this. I didn't yeah. see what happened. So he was talking about, yeah, he was talking about, you know, where the Palestinians are going to go and stuff and the, the whole situation. And he was um, talking about his, the, the leaders and he was like, yeah, El Sisi of Mexico 
Um, which, <laughs> and I heard that and I was like, Mexico? Wait, yeah. I, you know, a lot of these people I don't have on the, up at the tip of my tongue. And so I Googled El Sisi and, oh yeah, that's the president of Egypt. Uh, because he was talking about the border and, you know, Egypt is to the south of Israel, Gaza. And so he, you know, he, he get, he's got his borders mixed up. He got his southern borders crossed and he um, said Mexico instead of Egypt, which like, I, it's just a weird, that's a weird one. You know, like I, I get if being an old white guy and mixing up Lebanon and Egypt or Jordan or Syria, but Mexico, that's an, that's an entirely different continent. I mean, know? I think it's, you could call this maybe a Freudian slip because there's like similarities with what's going on at the border at both of these places, which I think we talked about a couple yeah. episodes ago. Right. Uh, also, you know, he, he listened to the podcast and that's why. That's probably why that's why he has brain damage. He's a brain damage survivor. <laughs> AMLO and CC are both, you know, pretty pretty cool names. I could see him thinking CC. Oh, that's definitely a Mexican dude. Right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, for a second I thought I thought of that that billboard uh, with Mussolini from the 30s, where it's like C C C C. Maybe that's what he had on his mind. But I was um, thinking about CC's pizza. Me and Benny and Yahoo. Me and Bibi. <laughs> oh, and then he also he also kind of seemed like he was trying to soft launch a ceasefire, but he can't even commit to that because he had a very artful like he, I think he was asked about a ceasefire and he was like, How do I say this without giving anything away? <laughs> Which what an asshole. Yeah, you really couldn't tell if it was him trying to to tease us and like you know, again, sop the base a little bit or yeah. or just him continuing to lose his mind. You know, it was it was indistinguishable. Um, how, but, how about a how about a CC fire down in Mexico? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it it he couldn't. Yeah, he couldn't use the word ceasefire. He said there's going to be a continued. Perhaps we're working towards this is what we're going to announce soon is a continued humanitarian pause. So maybe they'll do like another day where they just take a few hours off of shelling and then go back to it. Oh, yeah. Like they did it Christmas or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Damn, it's so depressing. <laughs> oh, all right. OK, thanks for the update. I was curious what the fuck was going on with him. Um, yeah, nothing new. I, he doesn't. He's, his brain is broken. Cool. Love it. He's not, he's probably going to lose, I think. To another guy who also doesn't have a functioning brain. Incredible country we live in. <laughs> Anyways, let's get back into hungover Palestinian history. It is uh, the 70s. We're going to get into the 80s, but right now, let's start in the 70s to lay the groundwork for this. Last time, last episode we did of this, it was with Freddie G. And I, uh, I really, after New Metal Night, I hit a wall and I did not make it to the end of the chapter. I made it to SC242, which is the, the um, what do you call it? The UN uh, fucking bill or whatever that bill? Uh, SC, whatever the fuck it is. Um, Security Council that, Resolution. There you go. Fuck it. I hate, it. I hate podcasting and not having my words in front of me. It happens once an episode. Um, but it's the, uh, the thing that like solidified the boundaries of uh, what we have now, you know, West mm-hmm. Bank, Gaza, all that yeah. shit. Right. And that was actually a good place to start because the rest of this chapter sets up what happens in Lebanon. So I accidentally, this all worked out perfectly. Um, where do we begin? So after 
this thing called Black September in 1970, which was a clash in Jordan. Um, the PLO relocates to Lebanon because the PLO was operating in Jordan. And um, let's see. So there were a couple of things that led into this. There, um, there was sort of like a, a conflict between them and the Hashemite monarchy. And it led to uh, something interesting. I kind of want to read into maybe for another episode, which is an era of uh, airplane hijackings by not the PLO, but the PLFP, which if you remember is one of the other militant groups that arose out of like the Fatah and all that shit. Hmm. And uh, the PLFP, this is controversial for obvious reasons, but they hijacked some fucking airplanes around this time and they didn't crash them into anything. They, uh, you know, it was just political and they, they ended up landing them, um, in this, this field called Dawson field. And, um, you know, this is all is being done for fucking reasons that, um, you know, in retrospect, the, the journalism around this stuff was going to, you know, how they'd say, Oh, nothing happened before October 7th. There were reasons for these hijackings and stuff like that. But this is near, neither here nor there. Another podcast to argue about whether or not that was based or maybe you shouldn't have done it. I don't know. But it was a PFLP. Um, well, we talked about a l- that a little bit on the uh, Weather Underground bonus up we did because they were they were helping them out with that. Oh, Or not right. Weather Underground. What am I saying? Red Army faction. God. It's right, right. about February makes uh, Bidenification of the mind. Wow, that's racist of you. Okay, um, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, if you don't, if you don't vote for me, <laughs> then you got brain damage, Jack. Okay, so, <laughs> anyways, anyways, uh, various factors that I'm gonna leave here because I don't have sketched out that well caused the PLO to have to leave um, Jordan after becoming coming in conflict with the Hashemite monarchy. There, we talked a little bit about Jordan. Jordan had sus politics jordan was trying to take over the entire middle east for itself so sure that happens right so they sort of uh land in beirut in southern lebanon which um there's a close they're close to the border with uh israel slash palestine right and this leads to you know various conflicts as an ongoing situation i think the ultimate thing to understand here is that all of this is being caused by fucking apartheid, you know? So whatever, uh, you can, you can isolate some of these like raids that happened by the PLO and you say, Oh, they're too militant and they, they didn't do it right. And, um, and you look at how they're, they're framed as just being like terrorist attacks or whatever. But, uh, that's, that's clearly like not the whole story. um, Anyways, so in 1973, there's an assassination of three PLO leaders in their homes in West Beirut by the Mossad, uh, by commandos led by Ehud Barak. I'm butchering these names. Forgive me. Ehud Barak, yeah. Who later becomes prime minister. And um, the uh, victims include like people like who are PLO leaders, but they're not like even like the the militants they're like poets and and writers and stuff like that who happen to be like organizers within the plo so there's this uh this person kamal nasser who's like beloved and um when you know when he's assassinated there's 
there's just like people gathering in the streets and it's like a huge day of mourning and stuff like that. Right. So what have you got? You got the PLO. They're in, um, they're in Beirut. They're being attacked by Israel. Um, a lot of these, you know, operations are being or referred to as operations are, they're saying like, Oh, this is in retaliation for like, um, you know, s- something where the PLO, you know, raided someone near Tel Aviv or something like that. Um, but obviously, like, there is a through line here we will see, which is Israel's ultimate motivations is just they want to stamp out the entire Palestinian people. So um, other assassinations have been carried out by Palestinian arms of other Arab governments uh, like Iraq, Libya, and Syria. So, like, people in the PLO are, are being being fucking murked by you know what looks like palestinian groups but they're like they're working with people that aren't allied with with the plo or whatever at that time um israel's using language like from the river to the sea so like i think we've talked about this before but like the the from the river to the sea thing is when palestinians use it it's a co-option of um yeah so the from the river to the sea thing it's originally uh like Israel used it to describe eradicating Palestine, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so there are assassination, assassination attempts on, uh, on Arafat, Yasser Arafat, the head of the PLO, this stuff gets declassified later. The justification is that he's a fucking terrorist or whatever. Yeah. 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 All right. So then in Lebanon, in Beirut, Palestinian refugees are living in uh, southern uh, Lebanon in camps like this town called Tal al Zatar near Beirut. And they find themselves allied with leftist Lebanese factions and Muslim factions. But they're opposed to like this Christian faction called the Maronites, who were allied with, and they're not fans of Mark Maron, by the way, before <laughs> anyone. Uh, they don't want to know who your guys are. They're not yelling boomer lives and, um, get yourself some square space. What are the fuck he's advertising? Um, <laughs> they, uh, the Maronites are allied with this right wing anti-Palestinian faction called the Phalanges party. The Phalanges are like particularly brutal and the whole right wing kind of thing has been the propped up by the legacy of the French mandate in like the 1920s. So when the French were still in Syria or in Lebanon, rather, sorry, they, um, you know, obviously the, the right, the, there's, you know, there's opposition to like the, you know, the, the, the left wing. And then there's like a sort of, you know, what do you call it when you have like the, the right wing is working for the colonizer. I can't remember the word for that is or whatever, but tale as old as time. Right. So there's like these weird right-wing nationalist factions that exist now that France is gone and they want to turn it into a Christian nation and yada, yada, yada. And so they have this group called the Phalangists and they're ultimately working for the the big group that everyone knows called the Maronites. Mm -hmm. So in 1975, the Phalangists murder a busload of Palestinians in response to a shooting at a church where their leader, this guy, Pierre Gemayel was, this is French legacy, obviously a guy named 
Pierre walking around in Lebanon. Uh, he was he was at this church. There's a shooting at it, and then they decide, oh, that was an assassination attempt. So the phalangists are unleashed, at, you know, in the countryside, and they go find this um, this busload, just a bunch of Palestinians going somewhere. They stop the church. They fucking kill everyone in it with machine guns. Right. That kicks off the 15 year Lebanese civil war. So that's in 1975. The war will go on until 1990. Right. So that's the setting of all this within the civil war that's happening in Lebanon. Uh, you have the PLO sort of operating out of Beirut and uh, there's all sorts of factions happening kind of a, around this this is a kind of one story that happens within it but it's a big part of the war um lebanese forces so the the lf is what you'll hear this referred to a, a lot there's this sort of faction called the lebanese forces and they're headed by gamal's son bashir who basically just in response to all this annihilates that town tal al zatar he kills like two thousand people it's uh, one of the hugest massacres in the whole war. So, um, yeah. So even in response to perceived threat against the, uh, the Maronite leader, Pierre Gabale, there's just immediately massacres, right? Um, this is all happening with the covert support of Israel because the, the enemy, the common enemy here is the PLO, right? So they sort of manipulate stuff that's already going on Mm -hmm. because the ultimate aim of Israel throughout the entire Beirut story is the, the term is they want to dislodge the PLO from Beirut because they're somewhat well protected there. So they're like, Oh, there's like sort of this already kind of someone's, someone's already mad at them. Okay. We're going to fund the shit out of them and then just make it look like, Oh, the, the LF, the Lebanese forces destroyed the PLO. We didn't even do it. Right. Proxy war. Mm. So there is this Arab league mediator. His name's Hassan Kabri Al Koli. He reports having been in the Lebanese forces control room with the decision, like when the decision to carry out the massacre was made, he tried to stop the leadership. Um, he says the leadership in the control room, uh, it, it was like Israelis and uh, Syrian personnel. Serious part of this too, right? This this alliance between Israel and S- Syria to uh, to sort of like bro- like to to condone the Lebanese forces attack on the PLO. This is very complicated. I understand. <laughs> so you got the attack being carried out by Lebanese forces on the ground, but they're backed by Israel and Syria in like these control rooms and communication centers, right? So how the fuck did Israel and Syria get together in the same room to like help orchestrate this whole thing? Answer is Henry Kissinger, right? His thing was he was like, this is an opportune moment to break the back of the PLO, which is the language he used. Hmm. So Syria has kind of more complex motivations, like ultimately they're they're vying for position against Israel, but as like the lead resistance against Israel, because all of the various Arab states are now just sort of like divide and conquered against each other. Right. So for whatever reason, that's what's going on with Syria at the time. And, um, 
And just uh, like Syria kind of sees this as an opportunity to kind of take the head of the resistance of Arab states against Israel. Also because, uh, as we discussed in the last couple episodes, Egypt has been sort of like mollified, right? By being uh, talked into like a peace treaty with Israel, which is really advantageous to Israel and to the United States because it just fucking breaks up like the um, the united front or whatever against what's happening there. So that's kind of a sad story because Egypt becomes a U.S. asset, you know, after all that happens, after this thing that's written in history is like an, oh, you know, peace treaty or whatever. Um, it becomes a puppet and an ally of the U.S. in the region, and it's useless against Israel. Um, plus, there's like weird distrust between Yasser Arafat and the Syrian president. So I don't know, you know, that plays part in this as well, right? There are individual actors and stuff. Um, Israeli officials would later write a book about this whole chapter of using the Lebanese forces and the phalangists. And in their own words, some guy, some guy from the IDF wrote a book and he called, uh, the, the, the phalangists, a pack of wild dogs, which is how they saw like, you know, harnessing their power against the PLO was, I just sick them in there. Cause they're fucking crazy. Right. <sighs> um, the U S sort of like sponsors all this during, you know, Nixon, Ford, Kissinger, Carter, and Reagan. That's how long this sort of situation goes on, even before the war and stuff. Um, The U.S.'s main motivation seems to have been to woo Egypt away from the Soviet Union. So so we're happy because we we got that, basically. Um, And towards acceptance with Israel to prevent a a detente in the Middle East uh, in terms of the Cold War. You know what I mean? That's that's what you'll hear from like U.S. presidents and secretaries of state and stuff like that. Oh, the main goal is just we want to create a situation that didn't turn into a big proxy war. Um, in the grand scheme of things, the PLO is like sort of a minor obstacle. If you talk to someone like Henry Kissinger, uh, whatever, just get rid of him. Just as long as it doesn't turn into a. The main thing is communism, right? So. Kissinger saw this as a moment to attack the PLO. He starts operations within the Civil War to uh, to break their backs, as he say, as he says. Kissinger convinces Israel not to oppose Syrian intervention by explaining that the ultimate goal here was to eliminate their common enemy, the PLO. He also interestingly negotiated with the PLO during this time, right? Which he wasn't supposed to do. Like he did this in secret because he's telling Israel the whole time, like, um, no, I'm on your side, right? So he's He's not supposed to go have secret meetings with the PLO, but his whole thing is realpolitik, you know? So he's breaking terms of a secret a secret U.S.-Israel memorandum that he had made earlier that year. So it's not even a public thing. This is fucking crazy. Hmm. In 1975, uh, he agreed uh, not to recognize the PLO until they accepted SC-242 and another one called 338, which, um, you know, basically the, the thing was... Israel said, you know, don't recognize them until they they officially go on the record, you know, saying Israel has a right to exist and uh, they're going to stop doing any violence, which they're, you know, is being regarded as terrorism or whatever, uh, yada, yada, yada. And so the PLO doesn't do all this shit because it's basically asking them to, like, not do anything and just accept what Israel's doing, which is, you know, 
apartheid, genocide, yada, yada, yada. Um, so in theory, he's not supposed to go talk to them, but he's like, I'm going to do it anyway, because he's Henry Kissinger. <laughs> and um, the deals he makes with them, though, he like, it's really sad. Like the VLO just gets fucked over over and over and over again. And like people make deals with them and then they don't really follow through in any of it. So the purpose was he wanted to ensure the security of the U S embassy in Beirut and Americans during the war, which the PLO upheld. They said, yeah, okay, Mr. Kissinger, you know, that's makes sense. This is like a third party. Uh, we'll secure the embassy. We'll protect Americans. Yada, yada, yada. So, Kissinger makes this secret deal with the PLO and they, uh, they, he gets away with it for a little while. But later on in 1979, Israel discovers like that had happened and they respond to it by car bombing a key PLO figure in these talks. This guy, Abu Hassan, who's the head of Arafat's security service, which is called force 17. And they say like, they say to the United States, this is no way to behave towards friends. <laughs> <laughs> This is fucking crazy. But they don't car bomb any United States people, do they? No, it's, I mean, it's so sad. <laughs> like, yeah. They get mad at Kissinger, so they blow up a fucking PLO member. Why couldn't it have been him? I know. <laughs> well, I think they kind of know, like, you can't, like, if you assassinated yeah. Henry Kissinger, you probably would have some repercussions. But the fucking nerve, the gall of... Like, especially the Likud party when they come into the picture here is I'm kind of surprised that they didn't because they really like push the U.S. around, which doesn't make any sense because U.S. is like their superpower, like sponsor that they mm-hmm. couldn't do any of this stuff without the support of. Um, anyway, communications continued, but more secretly. And eventually there's this guy, John Gunther Dean, who's the ambassador to Lebanon. And uh, he's uh, there's an attempted assassination on him by what turns out to be an Israeli puppet group the uh, Front for Liberation of Lebanon. <laughs> it's confusing. So anyway, the decl- some declassified documents show that the PLO's role in helping free, uh, oh, that the PLO had a role in helping like free hostages in Tehran during this time. So the PLO is like helping the United States in other shit, like the stuff that's going on in the, the Iran hostage crisis and shit like that. Um, the PLO is seeking recognition by the U.S. And, you know, they want official communications uh, channels and stuff like that as um, reward for these negotiations. And it's just never granted. There's like an official thank you that they sort of got from, you know, the, the State Department or whatever. But well, they just nice. never. Yeah, it's like a, a trophy. Yeah, like instead of a tip, you know. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um. It's they got done so dirty. It's horrible. So then Carter comes into office at some point during all this, right? I think we're about to get into the eighties. Uh, we're in we're in the late seventies, right? Yeah. Um, and Carter is like such a sad presidency because he's like one of the, he's you know kind of like Obama or something. Like he's sort of came in on all this radical rhetoric of sorts, and then it just immediately just, just folds and becomes really feckless. Uh-huh. In so many ways, right? So, like, he initially called for there to be a Palestinian homeland, but he was intimidated by the new Likud government um, and their uh, prime minister, Menachem Begin. His name is Begin. Menachem Begin. Begin, thank you. Um, (laughs) And uh, the president of Egypt, not Sisi and not AMLO, and Anwar Sadat, because we're in the 70s. 
So there's like an the Egypt Israeli peace treaty in 79. It um it sort of works against the PLO by placating multiple parties. Um the Likud like rams it through legislation wise. It uh Egypt likes the treaty because it gets the Sinai Peninsula back. Uh America gets Egypt, you know, as an ally. Um Israel just gets more control of the region. PLO gets fucked. Mm-hmm. Typical. Is it Begin, you said? Begin, yeah. Like Begin strips? Okay. <laughs> uh it's it's Begin, folks. Begin was <laughs> Begin was able to dictate much of the Palestinian terms at the 1979 treaty at Camp David. So Camp David, you know, is a sort of famous thing that gets brought up in Israeli-Palestinian history mm-hmm. uh, it was like a summit that was conducted without Palestinian representation. And I didn't know this. It was condemned by the UN. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> Shit that's happening now is like not new. <laughs> okay. Um. So, you know, the new Likud party and, and uh, you know, these various state actors working out this shit in 1979 happens without Palestinian representation it's pretty fucked up. Um, the Likud party from here would include Ariel Sharon, Benjamin Netanyahu, and you know, be implacably opposed to Palestinian statehood from here on out. It's the rest is history. We're living in it, right? And, and what's ba- the basic like agreement that they they reach there? Because that's always brought up as like one of Carter's few like achievements. Because and the way I remember it, it was very close to not working out like it seemed like they were not gonna reach a compromise but i mean this is and this is probably the way it's been mythologized but but uh rosalind carter says that she she made this like uh arts and crafts like paper mache thing basically or like this she made this sort of um work of art that had the names of the grandchildren for from both begin and and uh, the Israeli prime minister's name, I'm forgetting, um, and like gave it to them, and then they looked at it, and they were both so moved that they came back <laughs> to the table and reached this agreement. But I don't know, I don't know how true that is. But like, what was there? What was like the the kind of the the guidelines that they reached there? Um, I th- okay, so I apologize because this is unclear because my notes are kind of all over the place. But the, the I think the Camp David Accords is the uh, the Egypt Israeli peace treaty. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so it's just like an end to their to their war. Yeah, so I think so. Like, I it's not like uh, it doesn't really. It's not very deterministic about the future for for Palestinians. Well, I guess what like what our friend here, the author of this book, is sort of arguing is that like it, it, history remembers it as like this great moment, right? But uh-huh. actually, this was really bad for Palestine, and it probably Israel knew that, and their motivations okay. for going into this were, oh yeah, you know, if you if you sort of like d- diffuse. Egypt, it uh, really fucks up the defense for all the Arab states from Israel. And it also creates a situation where the U.S. is now more involved. And Because right. if you kind of remember the arc of this whole story, um, it starts off with, uh, with England, with the United Kingdom being the sponsor state, and then they leave. And then there's this weird, like, vacuum until they sort of realize they need a new sponsor to keep doing some of the shit they're doing and that becomes the united states and that's i think this is like 
kind of how that gets solidified in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is very confusing because it's like, you know, it's in your history textbook as like a good, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, and Egypt had its own motivations for, um, you know, because of what happened with the, the Suez crisis that we talked about and everything. And like, right. just kind of giving up on war at various points and being like, a um, you know, they were kind of a Soviet sponsored state at one point, but they just like couldn't beat fucking Israel. So, you know, I think they bought out, I guess it's like maybe had a, it's a good way to look at it. Okay. Um, yeah. So like when the Likud party comes into play, a lot of the language that's just still around is coming more and more open about believing Palestine, uh, Palestine belo- belongs to the Jewish people. And, um, you know, they sort of dangle these like local, these, these, these like promises of autonomy for local Arabs in certain ways, but like not in terms of, you know, having right to the land or anything, uh, it's, it's bad in retrospect. It's all pretty, pretty fucked up. This, uh, uh, this leads into, um, let's, yeah, let's get back to the Lebanon civil war. So the PLO is facing off against Israel, Syria, the Lebanese forces, and all these militias backed by like U S Iran, Saudi Arabia, um, there's a lot of factions in the Lebanese civil war. It's fucking crazy. But, um, the PLO stood pretty strong in places like West Beirut, Tripoli, Sidon, and the, uh, Shouf mountains. And the, uh, they're, so they, they're doing okay on the battlefield. And this leads to this moment in 1982 where uh, I fucking forget who's secretary of state at this moment. But um, they agree to with, with Ariel Sharon to try and take out the PLO in like one final action. So this mm. all this stuff has been declassified now, and it's like in the news at the time. It's kind of like, oh, why are they doing this? In now that there's declassified documents, there's just there were meetings with where Ariel Sharon, who was the um, the what do you call it? Begin was a prime minister. Ariel Sharon was the um, president. No, secretary of I, I'll get to it in a second because I wrote it down. But he he's like the you know equivalent to like fucking secretary of state or war or something like that. Yeah. He's the architect of the war is what I'm getting at. Okay, he, he's having very deliberate meetings where he's saying like this is a chance to dislodge the PLO. Um, so the chapter of this book that we're talking about starts with um Article 25 of the Hague, <laughs> which is timely uh which says that you know it's it's against the article 25 of the hague for a state to do an attack on undefended towns villages and shit like that just to just just for no reason i think he throws it out there at the beginning of this chapter because that's what's about to happen so 1982 there's this bombing that's carried out in beirut to try to kill off the plo uh, the first strike is on West Beirut, which is home to like a lot of government buildings. Wafa, which is the uh, PLO's like television network and media apparatus. Uh, it's called the Fakani neighborhood. There's a stadium that's flattened, like an entire stadium. And the pretext that Israel gives is that it was housing PLO offices. So this is why this chapter, like, man, <laughs> it it's really depressing to read because it's like they're just using the same playbook. 
Um, this is followed by a massive ground assault that led to Israeli occupation of most of Lebanon. It's, uh, there's a seven-week siege of Beirut and finally a ceasefire. 50,000 people are killed or wounded. Most serious, uh, it's the most serious attack on an army on an Arab capital since or by an army on an, uh, an Arab capital since World War II and not a, again until uh, the U.S. invades Baghdad in 2003. Wow. Yeah. It's Damn, fucking crazy. Watch the tape and look for ideas. <laughs> I maybe I that's that they bring this shit home, right? That's like uh they teach our cops shit like that, right? Yeah. I don't know. Um there's like 8 to 12 story apartments that are just leveled. They're like residential homes, right? Um this is also the first major war since 1948 to mainly involve Palestine rather than other like Arab armies and stuff. Prime Minister Begin approved the war, but the real architect of the war was Defense Minister Sharon. That's what I was trying to remember. Um, He wanted to set up, he wanted to shell Beirut and set up an allied government, but the chief objective really was Palestine itself back home. That's, that's what's interesting about this is like, they're fighting a war outside of Palestine. Or Israel, but Sharon's like motivations are to destroy the PLO because of because of what happened in in Palestine and because of the you know he wants to finish the job with the sixty eight borders and stuff like that. Yeah, and that is interesting. The idea that, I, to my knowledge, Israel's never succeeded at this, but like getting a neighboring Arab country to ha- have like a puppet government there that's like friendly to them. Like they've they've I don't think they've been able to pull that off, but that makes a lot of sense for them to try. No, that's what's really interesting about this is this is the one time they tried. Yeah. But like you hear all the time people say like uh, uh, something people will point out from the Zionist point of view of all this is like that they're not like imperialists, that they're not trying to take over anything. But like they fucking did (laughs) and and have in no way like changed course or anything. You know, this is just something that it just didn't work, I think, is what happened. Yeah. No. Yeah. The mantra seems to be the best uh Defense is a strong offense. Yeah, um, I'm going and we're getting my football analogies today. This is the Super Bowls tomorrow. Oh, I know. Oh shit, I forgot. We, you know, what's kind of <laughs> fucked up was we haven't we didn't do our annual pre Super Bowl episode because I had to talk about fucking Palestine. Maybe we'll do a post Super Bowl episode this year. Hungover. Remember? Yeah, uh, hungover Super Bowl. <laughs> Remember last year? It was what if aliens invaded the Super Bowl? Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, we're bi-coastal now, so it's not the same. I know we can't do it in my apartment again. Um, sad. Oh well. So yeah, he wanted to fucking set up a puppet government, and he wanted to fuck with Palestine itself. Um, it's also the largest mobilization since the seventy-three war. Three weeks in, uh, Syria's sort of talked into a ceasefire. So yeah, Israel, Israel talked Syria into a ceasefire, but it's a ceasefire that excluded the PLO. Hmm. So somehow they just sidelined Syria from like even potentially defending uh, the PLO, even if they wanted to, which they weren't really in the position they weren't doing, but they like, yeah. could have. Hmm. Um, this uh, let's see. Uh, 19,000 Palestinians were killed, 30,000 wounded, mostly civilians. 
Israel cut off water and electricity as it invaded the Shuf Mountains, Sidon, uh, Beirut, and locals fought back pretty hard. They, the defense of Sidon and Beirut and the Shuf Mountains uh, ended up killing 364 Israeli soldiers and wounding 2,400, which are minuscule numbers compared to the tens of thousands of Palestinians that are wounded in mm. like every one of these fucking movements. But uh, it's one of the biggest swipes against Israel that happened over the course of this entire thing. So, you know, credit where credit's due, I guess. Um, and they actually were killing fucking soldiers as opposed to, to Israel, who was just slaughtering civilians. This is what's so infuriating, because like if you read like journalism around this, they keep saying like, oh, no, they were they were doing their best to like not kill civilians. All they were killing was civilians. It's fucking crazy. Um, in 1981, there's a 10 month ceasefire. Uh, it's negotiated by this U.S. press envoy ambassador Philip Habib, who's in this story a lot. Right? You said so a press t- envoy. Uh, I might have fucking mashed a bunch of shit together in my oh, notes. Presidential, re- presidential. Oh, yeah, presidential envoy. That's Sorry. what it was. That would be really interesting, though, if it was like a media guy, like Brian Williams, negotiates the uh, ceasefire. <laughs> Um, no, thank you. That's a really, I'm glad you pointed that out because that didn't make any fucking sense. It's a presidential <laughs> envoy. He's an ambassador, Philip Habib, right? Um, so yeah, he, he negotiates a 10 month ceasefire. There's a ceasefire. It goes off pretty well, but this entire time Israel has been like preparing for their next strike. So there are just things to be gleaned from this about all the discourse around what if there's a ceasefire you know should there be a ceasefire now what happened during the last one um what to do after there's a ceasefire if we get one because they just spent the ceasefire like like building up resources for their next attack it's really fucked Mm -hmm. up so in 1982 we start to get warnings of them prepping for this attack there's this uh soviet guy uh representative yevgeny primakov in beirut who warns that israel is going to attack with U.S. backing, and uh, Russia's not... I think he's in Beirut. I, I can't remember. Uh, but he's he basically makes it a statement. I think I think he's like, you're not... He's not openly a Russian asset, but like everyone kind of knows. But um, he says Russia's not going to be able to stop it, and it's probably going to extend into Syria, which is a Russian ally, which I think is why he's like blowing the whistle on it. Hmm. And... Uh, wait, am I... You know what? Because this book is told a little bit out of out of fucking order. I just did something that I think uh, I need to kind of correct myself. So I just described the lead up to the to the siege, which I have already been talking about a little bit. Sorry. Okay. So 1982 is when the fucking this is when the actual siege happens when um, when Israel invades Beirut, which I think I just. I started describing and then I started talking about the lead up to it, which is a little confusing, but that's the main event here is 1982 fucking siege of Beirut. Um, so yeah, after they fucking level all those buildings and stuff and it's just like complete massacre, you have like Thomas Friedman in the New York times describing the bombings as indiscriminate and he's edited. (laughs) Uh, Oh, really? yeah, yeah. He he said he was staying in the Commodore Hotel and witnessed the bombing of an entire neighborhood. So he tried to write about it, and the New York Times edited him. Damn. And said you like you can't use that word indiscriminate because they're being very discriminate, right? Well, they at least didn't 
they discriminated enough to not hit his hotel. So I wonder if that was intentional. In a lot of cases, they do know like where the media are, right? Where like American media are and they don't bomb those places. Yeah. And the PLO helped, you know, with a lot of that. <laughs> um, despite intelligence, spies, which, yeah, exactly. You just described um, and all sorts of stuff like that. Not a single PLO leader was killed in the siege, nor a command center or control post or communication center hit. So they did nothing but kill civilians, right? Damn. Yeah. And I don't know. It almost makes you wonder, like, did they fucking do this on purpose? You know, I mean, I'm sure they would have loved to kill like the PLO, but it's just uh, the, the massive amount of civilians and the disregard for civilian death is just like abhorrent, right? Yeah. In 81, Begin had said, Israel is no longer refraining from attacking guerrilla targets in civilian eras, uh, areas. Um, he compared Arafat to Hitler in a bunker when he was talking with Reagan. So he's like justifying all this by saying like, it's there's no use in trying to discriminate anymore. Um, this is like kind of just a, a detail, but apparently there's this guy named Abu. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, like this. So, this is kind of the moment when America starts to wake up and smell the coffee, if you will, the Nespresso from Israel, and see like what their the the scope of of what they the way they wage war and just how how many people they're killing. Like it seems like that does, I would think, break through the coverage a little bit, and America starts to maybe for the first time kind of question this relationship and uh especially now that this is like kind of the first conflict israel has had that the u.s has been like directly implicated in right yeah totally because uh there are journalists over there and there's just like you know like the vietnam effect like there's just suddenly cameras and stuff on this sort of shit right uh and it's been you know what like a decade or so since you know since that since uh, the last time this happened. So you notice stuff like, I mean, it still kind of happens. This is still something I think it's observable in Israel now, which is like, they just pick up and keep doing shit that worked in past wars. And then they sort of get caught for it. And they go like, what? You know, and you're like, yeah, why are you doing like warfare from 200 years ago? But yeah. um, that does happen. And it's interesting. It gets played up a little bit. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Cause that that's kind of the, that's kind of what happens at the end of this story. Um, there was this guy named Abu Rish. They called him Father of the Feather. He was a notorious Israeli spy in Beirut because he wore a feather in his hat. What? If you're <laughs> a spy. Do you really want to be peacocking and like <laughs> making yourself stand out with a feather in your cap? Literally, crazy, right? They said he would just like he hung out on the street in this specific spot all the time. And the author of the book said there was like a local urban legend. He doesn't know if it's true, but they said that when the Israelis like came in that the father of the feather was out in the street, like guiding them to places to fucking murder people. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, this has come up already, but there's a weapon of choice during the Beirut siege that happened a lot, uh, that, or that was used a lot, which is the car bomb. So stuff would happen. Like, you know, a building would be blown up and then there would be like people's families trying to pull, civilians their family members out of the rubble and someone would get in a car and a fucking car would explode because the intention was to like to, to to kill civilians right like there's there's no way to to look at that as like oh that was targeting the plo because they're terrorists or whatever mm -hmm. 
Uh, it was really sadistic. Eventually, the PLO was forced by pressure from Israel, U.S., and Lebanese allies, uh, France, Syria, Saudi Arabia, and the absence of Arab support via uh, that ambassador Habib to evacuate. So, like, the, the devastation was so bad that they got sort of pushed into the situation of, like, you know, you have to leave because they're being attacked by a terrorist threat in a sense. The, the threat is if you leave, I'll stop murdering all these civilians, right? That's that's Israel's tack here. Yeah. Um, this, uh, this all kind of happened also because, like, I mean, at some point, Reagan's in office here, and Begin and Sharon go over to Reagan, and they, uh, they convince him that the PLO is a terrorist group that's aligned with Soviet Russia because mm-hmm. they know he has Cold War brain. And that just helps like a lot of this U.S. sponsorship. The U.S. supplied $1.4 billion in military aid annually throughout all this. They gave Israel like F-16 fighter jets, M-113 personnel carriers, uh, armored personnel carriers, fucking 155 millimeter and 175 millimeter air to ground missiles, cluster munitions, I, all of this crazy shit. Probably part of that having to do with Reagan being like, it's 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 the it's the Ruskies, you know, yeah. um, which is fuck horse shit. They just manipulated uh, the U.S. because they knew that's that's the U.S.'s main driving factor. The Arab League vocalized support for the PLO, but did nothing to oppose the U.S. and Israel. And uh, the U.S. floated this like really flimsy thing called the Reagan Plan at one point to placate Arab states which said that it would limit settlements and it would create uh, like an autonomous Palestinian authority, but it didn't, it wouldn't go as far as create a state and it didn't matter because Begin just shot it down. It was, it was like a fake um, gesture, you know? Um, but yeah, because of journalism and TV being a factor in this whole thing, public opinion in Arab countries was largely against the invasion and the siege, but a lot of these states had become so authoritarian that even though there was public opinion against the states, there's nothing they could really do. And people were like afraid to protest on a lot of these states. Ironically, there was a huge protest in Tel Aviv, which is, I think, like something that gets downplayed by a lot of this. There's like criticism of this shit from within Israel. The same way, like when our government is doing horrible war crimes, we protested here, you know, mm-hmm. but you get seen from outside as a state that's like a bunch of people that all agree on shit, you know? Yeah. Um, there was a guy named, I think I'm going to say Ellie, but it might be Eli. I don't, sorry, I'm just going off of various uh, Israeli and Jewish people I know. Uh, Ellie Gavon, so this I- IDF brigade commander during the siege, he refused to to go in. He refused to lead his brigade in on the terms that like, he was like, we are slaughtering children. He, he, uh, he had a phone call with Begin, and he said, when I look through my binoculars, I see children. Like, is that... Is that what you sent here to me here to do? And uh, he eventually got uh, discharged Damn. by Megan. Yeah. So like, there's like IDF people that fucking didn't want to do this shit, right? Well, there's a whole uh, website called uh, Breaking the Silence that's dedicated to and made by former IDF soldiers who have committed war crimes and are like, "Sorry, this is what I did, and I feel bad about it." So. Wow. Um, that Raise seems very cathartic to them <laughs> i guess i shouldn't make fun of them but yeah that's good that you fucking think it's bad um anyway so 
what do we got now? Secretary of State Alexander Haig. He meets with Sharon to drum up provocation for invasion. Um, the uh, Oh, okay. So, sorry, to go back again to before the siege. Story's kind of told out of order in the book, so I was just like putting notes everywhere. But um, yeah, another reason that they were able to to justify the fucking invasion was that uh, there was an a, attempted assassination of one of Israel's ambassadors in London, this guy Shlomo Argov. He was attacked by an a group called Abu Nadal, but like huge glaring fucking error and all or contradiction in all this is that uh, the Abu Nadal, the group the group that tried to assassinate this ambassador, is an anti-PLO group. Hmm. Like they're not part of the PLO. They just I think were Palestinian. So um <laughs> That was enough for them to go, okay, well, then we got to go kill the Palestinians for some reason. Um, Yeah, this is all described as like a limited operation to get out of like war lingo. And uh, another goal here was to expel Syria from Lebanon. The PLO had waning support from Lebanese population because they had done shit um, in their own military that wasn't fucking great. You know, war is complicated and, uh, you know, I, you don't want to do the whole, like, uh, they're just based cause they're the, the right side of this thing. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, killed civilians and they, they killed, they killed civilians in attacks on Israel and stuff like that. It's worthy of criticism and arguably fucking ha- led to some of the losing support they had from the population in Beirut around this time. Right. So, um, they lost some support among Shiites, uh, Sunni urban population of the major cities like Tripoli, Sidon, and, and, uh, and also this thing called the, the fucking, uh, the Druze fiefdom out in the mountains. This is real weird shit that I don't quite understand, but there was this, um, this faction that was also like a big ally of theirs. And all, everyone starts to start to lose face in the PLO near the end of this thing as they're leaving. Right. Hmm. Um, most of the resentment of the PLO seems to just come from the massive loss of life, just losing the fucking battle. Right. And that seems to have been Israel's goal in killing so many people is that like, if they just fucking massacre everyone, eventually people are going to go, well, you said this wasn't going to happen or like you caused this to happen. So public opinion suddenly drops against the PLO. Um, but then things happen like so this guy Wally Jumblatt, who is uh, part of the Druze thing out in the, the Shoof Mountains, he, you know, he acquiesced to Israel at one point and said, you know, OK, just fucking stop fighting and we'll let you through. And he ended up, ended up regretting it because they allowed the Maronites to invade and uh, much of it, you know, they started fucking committing all these war crimes and atrocities, which is what they were kind of known for. So like, again, like the Maronites and the uh, Lebanese forces are, and the phalangists are like the attack dogs, you know, that Mm -hmm. Israel is using. The Sunnis in Beirut had seen the PLO as a safeguard for, uh, from Maronite invasion. But after all this death, you know, they're kind of getting to a point where they're like, the cure seems worse than the disease. Okay. Maybe, maybe that was a bad idea. Um, and so, yeah, you get to the situation where the PLO is like leaving Beirut, right? Uh, when they 
decided to leave. They dropped this thing called the 11 point plan for withdrawal. It convinced, um, and it convinces a bunch of Sunnis, Shias, and Druze leaders back aboard, and they backed the plan's conditions of limited Israeli withdrawal, uh, safeguard for civilians, international guarantees to protect non-combatants. So this thing, that the 11-point plan that the PLO puts forward while they're leaving, it talks about the fucking phalangists, and it talks about the attack on that bus that started the whole war. And it says, like... Look, this is this is what you're inviting back into this space when we leave. So the one condition we want when we leave is protection for civilians from the impending like you know power vacuum that's going to create uh, that's going to let the the fucking the phalanges the attack dogs back in or whatever. So this kind of would have worked, except this is kind of where Reagan comes back into the picture. Um, and what year are we at now? Uh, this is fucking 82 still, I want to say like at the end of the siege. Okay. So Philip Habib, that ambassador, he's operating via Lebanese intermediaries and he provides Palestinians with a written pledge that says they're going to hold up the, uh, the thing that says they protect civilians and stuff like that. Um, so that's what, that's what they asked for in the 11 point plan is like, when we're leaving, protect the civilians, right? Philip Habib comes in. He says, okay, yeah, we're going to do that. Um, we'll deliver this like on written paper. You know, you got our fucking word. But the thing is, the papers that he delivers, they don't have a letterhead. They don't have signatures. He just types up like, I will. Yeah, sure. We'll do it. And they're, they're, still like on display in Lebanon. <laughs> All this negotiation happens while Israel's still bombing Beirut, by the way. Like they're they kill like 500 people the day this is all happening. And it's getting so bad that Reagan like called Begin. This is where I'm getting back to Biden here. He called him and demanded that Begin halt the carnage. He says uh he said I was angry. <laughs> I think our relationship's being endangered. He used the word holocaust a couple times. Wait, Reagan? And- Reagan. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And he says to Begin, uh, the symbol of your war has become a seven-month-old baby with its arms blown off. <laughs> Damn. Yeah. He like warns he does what Biden's doing right now, which is like perform this sort of thing, and maybe even believe it, but it's like, you know, it's the hot dog guy meme, like who the who's responsible for this or whatever. Um, or we gotta find the person who's responsible for this. So he does eventually convince Begin to halt, but uh, like Begin says, okay, I'll stop attacking, but I, he's just won't budge on the thing where like he's going to actively protect the Palestinian civilian population. He just doesn't do it. And there's really nothing anyone can do about it. It's crazy. The just the level of like stubbornness and nerve that these people have dealing with like Reagan's America, you know, <laughs> Um, so the PLO leaves the city and as they leave the city, there's like these mournful gatherings. There's like singing in the street and stuff like that. And they're scattered and exiled. A lot of them, it's for like the third time in their lives. They're just sent back out to fucking nowhere. And, um, what's really fucked up here is that no one seems aware that the U S agreement was that international forces supervising the evacuation, uh, are leaving. So they're kind of like under the impression that like all these foreign uh, international forces are going to like 
to stay and to uh, to oversee the withdrawal of the PLO and protect everyone in the process. But actually, that didn't happen, right? Because because um, Begin just denied it. Mm-hmm. So this kind of reminded me of the uh, the thing we talked about last week with the um, Desert Storm, right? Right. Like all the protecting forces just leave, and then everyone's like, "What the fuck? You just left us like you know on the chopping block for yeah. the for the phalanges." So September fourteenth. <sighs> okay, so after all this ends, and then all of the anyone who could potentially protect anyone leaves. There's like a moment, you know, and then on September 14th, the uh, president elect Lebanese forces leader and phalangist leader Bashir Gamal, the guy who's the son of the original one, he's assassinated by with a fucking bomb. Damn. Yeah. In uh, like the, someone blows up the phalangist headquarters that he's in. So that causes Israel to break the ceasefire that it just agreed to and invades West Beirut again. Oh, right. And so the thing is like those papers that ambassador Habib delivered in Lebanon, it said like to the PLO, um, yeah, you're that we, we uphold your end of the deal that, um, that Israel won't invade. Those papers are violated, right? Immediately. And they have no, legality because there's like no letterhead and no signatures on them or whatever. So it was complete bullshit. So they just sold the PLO a bill of false goods. Hmm. Um, Israel who's allies with the phalanges and the, uh, the Lebanese forces, um, you know, they get their cause for invasion and, uh, you know, they say, okay, we have to like, we, we have to get revenge for this bombing of of the fucking phalanges guy which like i haven't looked into it but like i don't know sounds awfully convenient that this just happened to happen you know maybe it was an op or something um takes roll into town there's bombing machine gun fire they just have these like massive columns at this point because they're so they're armed so heavily by the united states they have like amphibious fucking seal guys that go out in front of the columns it's like fucking horrifying um the author has a story about hiding out because he's like in Beirut for all this. He's hiding out at the university, the Arab university of Beirut. And, uh, there's like an Israeli soldier that comes out and they said, they're looking for terrorists. And, uh, you know, his friend who's like, who's keeping him there has to be like, there are no terrorists here. He literally goes, you are the terrorists (laughs) to the guy. Yeah. (laughs) Um, and the eeriest thing about the end of this is that he said that, he went out one night and there's flares all over the city. And the thing about flares is that they're used to illuminate battlefields like at night. So he's like, why are there flares all over the fucking city? This isn't a battlefield. It's a city, you know? Yeah. Um, and then he finds out, which is that the flares were basically for the Lebanese forces to quote mop up. And they ended up killing another 1,300 men, women, and children that night. Ugh. Yeah. Um, also, I keep referring to things being declassified. A lot of this is declassified via this thing called the Kahan Commission Report, if anyone's keeping track. Um, one of the declassified documents shows Sharon 
basically browbeating U.S. diplomats with the insistence that there were Palestinians left behind or a PLO left behind, which is his reading, which is his reasoning for sending in the phalangists. So like, this is also something that kind of probably is, you know, something to keep in mind with regards to what is being demanded of like Hamas today, which is it, you know, anytime that like they might make a deal to leave somewhere, History has shown that they're just going to say like, oh, they left people behind and then just shell the shit out of it and kill everyone, you know? Yeah. Um, there's this guy, Ambassador Moshe Arends. Uh, he's an ambassador to the new Secretary of State, George Schultz and Lawrence Eagleberger. Um, what am I looking at here? Uh, okay, so George Schultz, short, uh, George Schultz and Lauren Eagleberger. Secretary of State and Deputy Secretary of State are speaking with uh, an ambassador to Israel at one point, and they say, "I'm not sure." <laughs> they, 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 oh, okay, okay, sorry, sorry. This is a, this is a really fucked up meeting. <laughs> so there's U.S. Secretary of States, and they're talking to fucking Netanyahu and one of his like deputies at one point, and they're saying like. They're criticizing the the ongoing siege of Beirut, and uh, one of Netanyahu's assistants basically says, "I'm not sure you guys know what you were doing." Like he says that to America. <laughs> <laughs> um, Eagleberger said he might issue a statement calling Israel the Israeli occupation of Beirut contrary to assurances. That's the language that he uses, right? And Aaron's deputy, 33 year old Netanyahu, weighs in and says, "Quote." I would suggest you delete this. Otherwise, you give us no choice but to defend our credibility by setting the record straight. We will end up in a shooting war with each other. Netanyahu, sorry, I butchered this whole story. Netanyahu is an assistant to someone else in this story. He fucking says that to the Secretary of State. (laughs) Damn. I would suggest you delete this. Otherwise, you give us no choice but to defend our credibility by setting the record straight. We will end up in a shooting war. He threatens the United States government <laughs> and like with war and uh, just walks. Fucking crazy. Wow. So Ariel Sharon um, says something to Habib's off, uh, someone from Habib's office pressing them to leave. He says, when it comes to our security, we have never asked. We will never ask. And they continually just use the word terrorist to evoke what they're doing in Beirut, right? Something um, something that I thought was really crazy about this, and this will be a nice ending point. I got a couple of notes after this, but then we'll be done, is uh, <laughs> there's a fucking Doonesbury cartoon from 1982. It's, it's a... It's Doonesbury. I don't know how else to describe this. It's like <laughs> something from the phony pages in the newspaper. And this is in the book too, or you, you just found this? No, this is in the book. Nice. It's a cartoon, and it says it captured the Israeli government's expansive views of who might be a terrorist. The reference to seven... Okay, so uh, it's like some people in an office, and one of them is saying, what is it now, Sergeant? Sergeant goes, we just got the final count on the terrorist evacuees, sir. Guy goes, does this include the terrorists um, wounded from the terrorist hospital? The terrorists wounded from the terrorist hospitals? Yes, sir. Along with the terror, the terrorist doctors and terrorist nurses. Wait a minute. What is all this terrorist business? Wasn't Begin once a terrorist too? 
He goes, Mr. Began wasn't a terrorist. He was a freedom fighter. The guy goes, oh. And then the other guy goes, how many terrorist relatives? 3,000 terrorist babies and uh, 2,000 terrorist wives. Okay, so anyway, I fucking butchered that. But uh, <laughs> the joke here being shit that they're doing now, which is they're saying like, oh, well, we had to invade because they're all terrorists. Oh, like babies and hospitals and stuff like that. Yeah, they're, you've just cast everyone as terrorists. Woke Gary and- Trudeau. I know it's so crazy. I don't. I don't. I've never read Doonesbury. Is it all this incisive? That they, was just yeah, weird. They have a lot. Yeah, that's. Uh, they. They. It, it's very topical. It covers a, a wide uh, array, a wide range of history. You know, and they. But yeah, it's always up to date and like about stuff that's uh, not like foreign affairs and things and uh and he manages it's impressive in retrospect that he managed to like compress it into these just you know these small strips and also do like these long narratives with the characters as well i thought it was a fucking heathcliff or some shit i must have been wrong i've never read oh yeah it's like it's like uh ahead of its time really it's like a topical very topical uh comic strip satire well, I mean, it's a good example of how at the time there was like uh, because of media, suddenly people were able to look at this and go, hey, I think that's fucking bullshit. Like the things that they were able to get away with by just well, yeah, casting everyone involved as terrorists while clearly having the intent of genocide and not yeah. of stopping terrorism. Right. Fucking crazy. And it rings true today. So, um get through the rest of my notes here and we'll wrap this up. But Sharon had armed the Lebanese forces to the tune of $118.5 million to do the job they did, uh, mopping shit up. The PLO had specifically warned of the phalanges and the Lebanese forces in the 11-point plan. And uh, Israel had specifically sought to use the brutality against them. The declassified documents reveal that this is all very deliberate stuff that gets played off as like, oh, it's, you know, just part of war. Sorry. Uh, it was the fucking plan the entire time. 1982 was different because Israel had learned to ask the U.S. for permission. So it didn't end up in another Egypt situation. Because you remember the Suez crisis, the Suez war was a thing where, you know, the U.S. found it, or the Israel found itself opposed by the U.S., which I think they had learned from then. Oh, okay, like we can't go in and invading places with uh, without getting permission from the U.S. because we could end up getting like disciplined by them, you know. Yeah. Um, but if you like hear these stories about them just like t- telling fucking Secretary of State and Reagan and people like that, like, oh, we're just gonna do this. Fuck you. It, they figured out they didn't need to do much. They just needed to go in and say, we are going to do this or make up these like false pretenses like, oh, they tried to assassinate one of us or whatever. And then they got what they wanted, which is United States sponsorship. Um, the author of this book argues that this is the first war that can really be seen as a joint U.S.-Israeli venture, uh, no matter what the U.S. tries to say. I think it's probably true. And it's sort of, you know, sets the stage for everything that sort of comes after it in terms of the U S sponsoring Israelis, uh, you know, war crimes and stuff. Um, yeah. So 82, right. The PLO pulls out and all this stuff happens. And this savage attacks happen by the phalanges. They're, they're the, you know, what a wild pack of dogs or whatever. Um, and it's really sad, but this is, one chapter of an ongoing war, the Lebanese civil war went on until 1990 and in the power vacuum that was created 
Hezbollah rises, right? Uh huh. So, kind of tale as old as time at this point. If you look at how these things happen, when there's a fucking power vacuum like this, something kind of worse comes along a lot of the time. And something that doesn't really get talked about much is how a lot of the people that founded Hezbollah, they weren't in the PLO, but they were like locals who fought alongside the PLO, who then, after the PLO was forced to leave, kind of had nowhere else to go, you know? Uh So they decided, okay, well, we're going to sort of like join up and form this more fundamentalist right-wing thing uh, and just go along with whatever's happening there because you deprive them of the option for autonomy like self-defense or whatever right um and the u.s eventually got sucked back into the war because uh u.s embassy in beirut and some u.s marine barracks were suicide bombed by groups like hezbollah and that's really fucked up you know why because before the plo was defending the embassy and those barracks and stuff like that so by eliminating the PLO, they caused the U.S. to actually have to kind of get more involved still. Okay. Uh, this led to some shit where, like, there was this fucking battleship called the USS New Jersey that ended up firing. They said it fired shells the size of Volkswagen Beetles into the Shoof Mountains where there were, like, Druze militias fighting Lebanese forces and all this shit was going on. They said, like, fuck it. If you asked people on the battleship what the point of the fucking what they were fighting for. Like they completely lost the thread individually as soldiers and stuff. Yeah. Uh, because they're, they're believe it or not, Liberty civil war, very complicated. Um, but anyway, that's pretty much what I got here. Um, yeah, sorry. It's scattered a little bit, but the main event of this story is just this massive invasion and all of the things that happened to justify the invasion that caused, you know, the, this, also, it's a devastating strike against the PLO. Right. It's pretty sad, and it's rife with parallels to things that are happening now. just want to say I looked up the Doonesbury for the day I was born. <laughs> and it's a lady reporter. And it, and it is, again, like they, it's impressive that he does. It's not just like static, you know, uh, one-off strips they follow like a arc over the course of like years i guess but there's a lady reporter in what i think is saudi arabia she's interviewing a troop she's like so these are the famous ready to eat meals and he says yes ma'am sorry we can't do better by you don't be silly dear they're scrumptious now tell me how long you've been here in the camp about nine weeks ma'am before that i was at the refugee camp in safwan with the third brigade i was attached to elvis presley's old battalion goodness did he make it over check ma'am he was spotted giving autographs to the refugees well, I'm laughing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's got to like do this whole arc and then also make every single section of it punchy, you know, have like a punchline to every single like imagine doing like a year every day for a year. You have one little punchline in, in like a grand story. It's insane. Can't imagine that at all. Anders Lee. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you just described our whole fucking life. What are you talking about? Well, yeah, we do this twice a week, but. I guess, it, yeah, that's true. <laughs> we don't draw it, thankfully. And there's there's not a whole lot of ongoing arcs. This this series is an ongoing arc. That's true. You know? Should be illustrated by Gary Trudeau. Gary Trudeau, come on the fucking podcast and debate us, you coward. That would be sick. That would be one of the, a dream guest. <laughs> I don't, it would be a weird dream guest. 
Uh, Reach out. Maybe, I, 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 maybe Doonesbury is cool. I had no idea. I, th- I just thought it seemed lame. It's a lame name, Doonesbury. Yeah, it's just like think like a guy's name, but it, it is it is interesting. I remember one of the first podcasts we ever did. We were it was uh, we were making fun of Bezos because he's on late night. He's like, I've got a Doonesbury cartoon that says. Well, um, that's uh, my only memory of him. Yeah, that seems a very like thing that Bezos would pretend to like. I, I don't know if how much he actually. Maybe he does like it too, but it seems like a very like founder of Amazon. You know, sort of. I'm sort of a intellectual. Oh, type. I see. Okay, Doonesbury actually based. He's 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 unworthy of it. Yeah. Okay, I got you. All right, I'm on Doon- Team Doonesbury now. They have a I'm whole back. thing. I had a I had a whole. Uh, I guess I want to say graphic novel, but I think it was just a collection of their Reagan, their Reagan. Um, and I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Reagan was just a cowboy hat floating on an invisible over an invisible man. Like I don't think he ever drew Reagan, if I'm remembering that correctly. Uh, yeah, but he he had a whole he had a a book called In Search of Reagan's Brain or Inside Reagan's Brain that was really good. Anyway, we'll have to do a Doonesbury episode at some point. Apparently, and uh, you know what? I'm, I'm you know I apologize for my language about all of the <laughs> cartoons. Uh, uh, Family Circus. What do you have to say about the Armenian genocide? You know? Um, yeah. Uh, uh, peanuts. Your your silence is complicit. I need to know what you know, what you <laughs> think about uh, <laughs> fucking. I don't know, Pol Pot or something. I don't know, fucking know. All right. Um. Anyways, that's that is a uh, a story from history that has absolutely no bearing on the present. Don't worry about it. Just a fun story. That's the siege of Beirut, everyone, nineteen eighty two. We're back from the 80s. You can shave your sideburns and um, turn off your keytar. It's year 2024 again. That's the episode. Do we got plugs? Do we got plugs? At uh, Andersley here on Twitter. That's the main one. Paid protest. Next one's March 1st. And uh, that's that's my plug for this week. Check out the Brooklyn Rail. <laughs> yeah check out the brooklyn rail we talked about it on the bonus episode but andrews has a fucking piece in the brooklyn rail that's right and i have a piece in the Ellery review books someone reviewed my birthday party um listen to my other podcast why you mad it's back we've been hitting it pretty hard i'm having a pretty good time with Luis diaz talking about comedy and tv and shit like that and philosophy and uh my other podcast my other other podcast that's my podcast i don't know you it's my podcast about king of the hill with Funniest comedian I know, uh, Avery Moore. Sorry, other comedians. Sorry, me. Sorry, you, Anders. Damn. She's the funniest of all time. Okay. Check it out if you like King of the Hill. That's literally the podcast. Um, all right. I think that's it. It's finished. It's finished. <laughs>